I ask people not to go with their instinct very clearly. Never go with your gut. I mean, that's kind of what the book is about. Yeah. Why is that? Well, our gut is adapted for, not for the modern business environment, as you can imagine. The modern business environment has really been around for the last, I mean, up since World War II. Our gut is adapted for the savannah environment. That's what our emotions are adapted for. That's what our instinct is adapted for. Hmm. It's adapted for the hunter and forager environment. That's best-selling author, consultant, coach, speaker, CEO, philanthropist, and neuroscientist, Dr. Glove Sapersky, who shares that our human instincts can lead to disastrous decision-making. You're listening to The Realist Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. Before we begin, I would like to improve this audio experience for you all listening to this, so please, by all means, Pause this episode right now and leave a review. See, it's on the slow part right now. Pause the episode and leave us a review. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, and ultimately how we can improve your day. Okay? All right, back to the show. Here we go. Give it up, ladies and gentlemen, for the real Dr. Gleb Sapersky. All right, here we go. In five, four, three, two, one. And welcome, everyone, to the Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Across the screen from me today, we have Dr. Glebs Persky, the CEO of Disaster Avoidance uh, Experts, LLC. Doc, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me on, Kevin. It's a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure. Doc, you're the man. I've, I've been looking at your, your stuff. I've been looking at your posts. That's what they say. That's what they're saying. Um, <laughs> okay, good. Good. I like them. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what people are saying. So I'm, I'm online. I'm looking at a lot of your videos, a lot of your lectures, your keynotes, uh, some of the books you have coming out. But before we you know jump into all of this, um, you're you're a doctor, uh, you know, and now mm-hmm. you're a business consultant. Would you mind uh, explain yes. to our audience, you know, how your career has unfolded? Sure. Uh, so from. Well, let me get a little bit back <laughs> since I was a kid and how I got interested in this stuff, and then I'll get from that into my career. When I was a kid, I saw my parents making some really bad decisions, especially my dad. You know, he was a real estate agent and he has variable income. So he had some money from my mom at one point in time, and he kind of bought an apartment on the side. And it was for several years that he was hiding income. When she found out, she was really pissed. It really led to a big blowout fight. They separated for a while. They got back together, actually, but it was not a good situation. She couldn't really trust him again. So that made me fascinated about why people make good decisions and bad decisions, especially bad decisions in the case of my dad. I grew up in the dot-com boom and bust. You know, 1999 was, I was 18 in 1999, and that was just a year when a lot of dot-coms were booming, pets.com, webvan, and so on. And then 2002, I was 21, and they all went bust. So that was a really uh, shaping experience for me. It really shaped me powerfully. That made me fascinated by why people make bad financial decisions in their business, in their career. So I decided to study this stuff, and I decided to do consulting, training, coaching around it. I researched it for a while, started doing consulting, training, and coaching. And at the same time, a little bit later, I went into higher education. I decided I need more professional understanding of this and actually doing some research myself. So I've been doing consulting, training, and coaching for about 20 years. And I've been in higher education academia for about 15 years. So, and while I was in 
academia, I did moonlighting on the side as a professor doing consulting and so on. So I still kept that part of my career going. But about a year and a half ago, I decided to go full-time. I left academia uh, after spending seven years as a professor at Ohio State and before that a researcher. And now I'm just doing consulting, training, coaching, and writing full-time as a CEO of disaster avoidance experts. The Ohio State University, right? That's the, right. The, the Ohio, Ohio State, State University. State. That arrogance, that arrogance has to be there with a V. <laughs> I, I just know that because that's where my father attended. So I grew up a big, uh, oh, there you go. big go Bucks fan. Go Bucks. Go Bucks. Great season so far. All right. Back to, back to this yeah, interview. Oh, so, beautiful, season. beautiful season. Doc, I, I love interviewing people who have had um, or have spent time in different uh, industries and fields. Uh, but <laughs> for our audience as well, I don't think you mentioned what field were you studying specifically? Was it neuroscience? Yes. So my field, uh, apologies about that. My field was quite eclectic. Uh, so I studied a number of topics. The, my focus is in cognitive neuroscience. The biggest the underlying pinning of what I do is in cognitive neuroscience and specifically the economic aspect of it, so behavioral economics. So how do we think and how do we behave and how do we make decisions around economic issues, especially issues of leadership, issues of career? How do we make decisions within organizations? How do we make decisions around our careers? That's that's my focus. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that's so interesting uh, because what fascinates me is why do people make the decisions? What, um, you know, um, why do people do what they do is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yes, you know, that's exactly it's, right. It's yeah. interesting. And, and why it's they do what they do based off of what they eat, how much sleep they got, uh, their, their chemical reactions. I, it, all these factors come into play, their upbringing, their biases, their unconscious biases. So sure. let's start with one topic. I interviewed yesterday with a, a man named uh, uh, Licky Lavji, and he, uh, Gleb, is a, a leadership consultant, and he's talking about blind spots and, and locking, you know, recognizing these blind spots. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I got out of that is he he referred. So I, said, I guess the question, the first question I have to you is, um, is he referred to a blind spot as a personal limiting belief? However, after speaking with him, uh, the question I have for you, Gleb, the first one is: Is a blind spot a personal limiting belief, or is it uh, an external uh, limiting bias, or neither? How would you define uh, a blind spot? So blind spots, uh, you know, you can colloquially talk about them as personal limiting beliefs, but that's not like what they actually are. Mm. So if you look at the research, the cognitive neuroscience and stuff, I mean, lots of leadership consultants use blind spots as a colloquial term kind of to try to help people understand things. And it's not a bad, I'm not criticizing a leadership consultant for using it as a colloquial term. What I do is I always use the terminology that is actually used in the cognitive neuroscience literature. So I don't really talk about blind spots because it's very colloquial. It's just people have definitions for it. So it gets confusing. If I say blind spot and I'm thinking one thing and then you're thinking one thing, another thing when I say blind spot, it's not going to help you. It's not going to help me. I talk about cognitive biases. Cognitive biases is a very specific term defined in the literature. It's the specific decision errors that we make that deviate away from the right decisions. So there's always going to be decisions that are going to be the best decisions for a bottom line. Always. There's specific decisions that are the best decisions. Cognitive biases are a series of over a hundred 
decision specific types of decision errors that we make that cause us to deviate away from the right decisions. So that's what I focus on. What decision errors do we make and how do we address them? One example that you might have heard of is the planning fallacy. The planning fallacy is one of these really fascinating decision errors where because we feel good about ourselves and we feel good about our companies, we make plans as though those plans will come true. We, again, we make plans as though our plans will come true. We invest our resources of time, money, social capital as though our plans will come true. And, you, know, you might have heard the saying that plan is planning to fail. That's unfortunately a very, a very misleading saying because what actually happens with our plans is that they often don't survive contact with the enemy. And so people who just make plans as though everything will go right, really screw themselves in the end because the plans don't survive contact with the enemy. A much better phrase is failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. Again, failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. So how you defeat the specific cognitive bias of the planning fallacy is that you look for potential problems that might come with your plans. Look for them in advance. Look, search the field of potential risks, challenges in advance. Also search for opportunities. What kind of opportunities might come about that you didn't expect? Because you know, not taking advantage of the opportunity can be just as bad for your bottom line as falling into a specific problem. And so then you wanna look for potential problems, potential opportunities, and make your plans such that you can take advantage of both of opportunities and address when they come up. Gleb, I really like your analogy of uh, you can prepare for something until you get met with the competitor. I think it's the same thing for like sports. It's like boxers will always say, you know, it's it's you can only prepare so much until you get punched in the face, you know, and and for <laughs> for for like basketball or football, you have a game plan all week. You're practicing that until you go on the field mm-hmm. and it's based off their other reactions. So how in a business setting uh, can business decision makers practice and prepare um, to go against their unconscious bias, their cognitive bias, um, for when that time comes to make a decision? The first and the most important thing they can do is actually get awareness of what their personal cognitive biases are. And that's critically important. So take me, for example, I'm a small business owner. The disaster avoidance experts has six employees. And so I, I'm i one of these people who has to prepare for cognitive biases. And what I've learned about myself through the techniques that are described in my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, which is, you could see it right there, is that you want to look for where you tend to go wrong, what kind of the errors you tend to make. The book Chapter seven, the last part section of the book, actually has an assessment that you can use to measure the kind of cognitive biases that you might be falling into as a leader. Now, what I tend to fall into as a leader, my worst cognitive bias is the optimism bias. So I tend to think that the grass is greener on the other side of the hill. I tend to think that you know things will be funky, everything will be good and I risk blind. That means that I don't tend to notice risks that are around the corner, and I tend to overestimate the kind of opportunities that are going to be facing me. So what I had to learn about myself over time is 
how to notice this coming up and how to address it. And how I do this, the, there's a very good effective technique for this, which is ask people who are pessimists. <laughs> mm. So ask people who are pessimistic. So the fortunate thing for me is that my wife, who's a, who is a co-founder of the Disaster Avoidance Experts, she used to be a nonprofit consultant and I used to work with companies. So we combined and now we work with both businesses and nonprofits. So she has pessimism bias. She thinks that the grass is yellow on the other side of the hill. So we work well together because I I generate ideas really well and I'm very motivated. Optimism bias is great for motivation. Helps me go forward, do a lot of things, but it doesn't help me make the right investments and take the right risks. So whenever we collaborate and shape our strategy, I run ideas by her and get her feedback on, hey, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? You know, Optimists are, are very good at generating ideas. So whenever I work with teams and how to manage teams as a trainer and consultant, I come into an organization and there's a lot of fighting often between optimists and pessimists where optimists will be creating ideas and pessimists will be shooting them down. That's a very bad way of working together. A much better way that my wife and I practice and discover working together and that I teach people to do is to have optimists be the brainstormers. They will be the ones generating the ideas so that they can generate you know, 20 great ideas that they think are great. But then they give them to the pessimists and then the pessimists pick out you know, the free ideas that seem most worthwhile or something like that. And then they finish baking those half-baked potatoes. They solve the problems and they work with the optimists to solve the problems. So that's a much better way of working together for optimists and pessimists. And that's what I had to learn to do as a small business owner myself. And the same thing goes for the largest business owners, you know, and for medium business owners, they need to learn where they tend to go wrong. You know, do they tend to fall into the planning fallacy? Do they tend to fall into the optimism bias? Do they tend to be overconfident? Do they tend to uh, fall into the sunken cost fallacy? We can talk about each of those, but there are many of them. The 30 most dangerous ones are discussed in my book. So you need to know what happens for you, where you tend to go wrong and how you can address this most effectively. So, uh, Gleb, you, you mentioned measurements. So, in your example, if you have the three ideas and then your wife, the pessimist, picks out the one or two ideas out of your three ideas, how do you measure um, you know, your results? Well, it really depends on the idea. So, uh, right now, one of the things that I tell people is how do you – one of the – key aspects of any decision that I talk to business leaders about is what will cause you to change your mind about that. So what will cause you to visit this decision, to change your mind about this decision? And that is the basis of measurement. So baked into any decision has to be what is the measure of success or failure of the decision. So for example, if you're launching a product, you you don't need to argue about whether it's successful or not immediately after the after the launch you set a measurement you say i will revisit this product i will revisit the process of the product launch if we don't hit three million dollars within the next six months so again that's a very specific concrete measure that you can use to revisit what's going on and then change your mind pivot if you need to but if everything is going well then you know hey you're in the right track and you in six months who just continue going with where you're going. So that's something that you really want to bake into any decision as part of the process of decision-making. 
So what about all the business decisions that have been because of instinct? Uh, for instance, are you, are you asking people not to go with their instinct and not make a confident decision? Or are you asking people simply, hey, just get more feedback and look at the data-driven uh, possibilities and then make a decision? I ask people not to go with their instinct very clearly. Never go with your gut. I mean, that's kind of what the book is about. Yeah. Why is that? Well, our gut is adapted for not for the modern business environment, as you can imagine. The modern business environment has really been around for the last, you know, since World War II. Our gut is adapted for the savannah environment. That's what our emotions are adapted for. That's what our instinct is adapted for. Hmm. It's adapted for the hunter and forager environment. When we lived in small tribes of 15, a couple of dozen 150 people at most. So we are very tribal. That's one fundamental aspect of our instinct, tribalism, where we like people who look like us, who think like us, who talk like us, who have the same beliefs that we do. That's one aspect of tribalism. The other is that we like to climb in the social hierarchy, to the very top of the social hierarchy. And that all causes us a whole series of cognitive biases, which you can get into, but that causes us to make really bad decisions in our business collaboration with others, how we assess other people and how, you know, so... I'll give you an example. If you look at the, if you look at the uh, dot-com boom and bust, there were a number of business leaders at WorldCom, Enron, and Tyco, and so on, who made horrible decisions about how to deal with the bust aspect of things. Now, most business leaders very honestly acknowledged they suffered really losses. But several business leaders, really very prominent ones, really very, very prominent ones, chose to use fraudulent accounting methods to hide their very bad losses from the dot-com bust. Now, they I mean, they ended up in jail, a number of them, and their reputations were ruined. But if you look at what happened, why did it happen? They knew that they would get caught. I mean, it would be one, two years at most and they can get away with fraudulent accounting practices before, you know, the before everything was revealed. Now, when we look at why they did it, it ha- what we can see about why they did it is that they didn't want to be perceived as losers. They didn't want to be perceived as failures by their fellow business leaders. So it's about social status. That was the fundamental driving force mm-hmm. that caused them to make horrible decisions. And so many business leaders make horrible decisions because of that as well. So that's one. Mm-hmm. The other aspects of, tri- of the Savannah environment is the fight or flight response. So again, the fight or flight response, you might have heard of it as a saber-toothed tiger response. When we our ancestors had to jump at a hundred shadows to escape that one saber-toothed tiger. Now that was great for the savannah environment, but right now we don't have, we don't face tigers every day. We don't face that threat, but we react to threats as though they're saber-toothed tigers. We greatly overreact to threats and we make unthoughtful decisions when we react to those threats. I mean, I was just driving the other day, literally ago, and there was a deer who jumped right in front of my car from the side of the road. Why is that? Well, the deer jump randomly as a result of that saber-toothed tiger response. And people often jump randomly as well. They make bad decisions in the moment. That's why it's incredibly, incredibly important for business leaders to slow down, not make decisions intuitively, instinctively, and always check with their head before they go with their gut. Now, their gut may be right or it may be wrong, but you never want to trust your gut on a business decision 
that you don't want to screw up. You always want to check with your head and make sure that the gut reaction is not steering you in the wrong direction. Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. I, I guess it was just uh, uh, at first, I'm glad you said that, Gleb, because at first I was like, okay, for every decision we make, which is a lot of decisions, we get decisions every single day, we, you know, I would have to ask for feedback from, you know, someone in my team to get that right decision. And I guess, you know, that makes a lot of sense. But I, I want to stick on something that you had mentioned, Gleb. Uh, you were talking about um, the the hierarchy and the hiring process of, of an employee. So let's walk through that journey. Yes. Um, when someone, uh, a hiring manager, um, now this is something I'm going to relay to you. And this is something that I just found fascinating. Last night after speaking with my roommate who works for a staffing company, um, he's had he had two qualified candidates. He has to interview them and then send the uh, resumes over to the the hiring uh, um, you know business. They reviewed the resumes, got them, and before they uh, send uh, or when they send the resumes, they don't send the the company any uh, employee data because they don't want them to hire hire them because they are employees of this company. So no name, no address, no age, nothing. So that takes the bias out. Then uh, they they share with them their first names. It happened to be that one of the uh, um, uh, potential empl- employers, uh, potential employees, sorry, uh, her name was like Sue, some some um, or uh, it was some uh, I don't know, Chinese or Japanese name. My apologies for not knowing that, but it was some some name, and she goes by Michelle. So. Her first name is is a difficult name to pronounce for someone you know that's that grows up in America, and uh, she immediately gets a, a rejected because of her name, not because of of her resume and everything like that. Because of her name, how frequent is this, Gleb? Because I gotta say, if if you get someone with a, a name. Gleb Sapersky, uh, uh or uh, you know um, Sue Win. That's that has to do something with, like you said, your initial reaction. Like, what's your experience uh, in terms of the hiring process, and how can hiring uh, uh, employers avoid something like this? Well, there are several aspects of the hiring process. Let's go for the f- first one. Let's do kind it. of the names. There is extensive research showing that people with foreign-sounding names and with of African-American sounding names tend to be rejected at a much higher rate than uh, those with not foreign sounding names than those with not African-American sounding names. So how that's been done is that actual researchers have created exactly the same resumes, exactly the same resumes, and just gave people two different names. And they send them to a bunch of uh, hiring agents and to hiring managers and saw which ones got callbacks for potential interviews. And that's what they found, that people with foreign sounding names and with African-American sounding names get much less callbacks for potential interviews, even though with the same resume. So that's clearly an example of what's going on. Really, really problematic stuff. That's because, that's again, that's a tribalism. Who's in our tribe? Who's not in our tribe? <laughs> I'll give you a funny story about this. Glad, so, really, okay, really quick, I was going to ask you though, is that confirmation bias? Is that unconscious bias? Is uh, What's the other uh, bias I'm thinking of? So that, that, well, that's that? the halo and horns effect. So the halo effect okay. says that if people look like us, if they think like us, if we 
like one aspect of that person, then they'll kind of have a little halo effect, <laughs> little halo around them that they'll be, oh, uh, that we will like all other aspects of them. If we don't like one aspect of them, if we feel that it, that, that person is not part of our tribe, if they have a foreign sounding name, if you're not African-American, if they have an African-American sounding name, then there's going to be the horns effect where we will dislike them, we will trust them less. Mm. <laughs> one of the aspects of the horns effect is accents so right now you can clearly hear that i have an accent i love your accent. that's cool oh thank you very much but for most people that would cause a horns effect so where people with foreign sounding accents have been shown to be trusted much less by americans than people who have a mainstream american accent so again the same thing with employment much less likely to be hired because just because of the accent so that's the horns effect and those are big problems for employees and employers because of course employers don't get the right employees now i'll give you an interesting example yeah, of how what's, it plays what's the story? out i cut you off sorry sure no problem you you had a question so I told you I live in Columbus, Ohio, and this is the home state of the Buckeyes. So we talked about this in the pre-podcast. And I was giving a presentation to hiring managers at the Diversity Inclusion Conference here in Columbus, Ohio. And it was a conference of about, there were about 100 people there. And our big, just for context, the big enemy of Ohio State football team is the Michigan Wolverines. School up north. So, yeah, that's right. And we don't like them. <laughs> we don't like them. So then I was giving that presentation and I asked the people there, hey, how many of you would hire a Michigan fan? Raise your hand. And you know what? There are only three people raised their hand. Three people of the that hiring managers at a diversity inclusion conference would hire a Michigan fan. <laughs> so there you go. That's kind of, you know, the kind of people that you lose out. And that, that gives you some context for how people make some really bad decisions because of the halo and horns effect. So that's one aspect of things. Now, the next part comes during the in-person interview. So you bring somebody in and you talk to that person, you know, blah, blah, blah. Do you click? Do you not click? And then you hire them or not hire them. That's actually a terrible, terrible way of making a decision. And I'm sorry for all the business owners who have hired people that way. Apparently, unstructured interviews where you just have a conversation and you see how you feel about that person is a really not predictive of their future success in the business. Because some people are really great at conversation and convincing you face-to-face. They're really great salespeople. They sell themselves really well. But that doesn't really say much about their success in the workplace. So whether they are successful or not, the interview doesn't show up. That doesn't show whether they'll be successful or not. So that's very dangerous to have an unstructured interview. What you want to have is a structured interview, which means asking all the people who are coming in the same set of questions as much as possible, and then rating them based on these questions. Again, same set of questions that you prepare in advance and rating them on these questions. So that has been shown to actually quite highly predict future success in the job. So uh, moving on, so past the hiring stage, the promotion stage, you wrote a great article. You mentioned the Peter Principle. You mentioned, you mentioned the, uh, what was it, the Curse of Knowledge. Curse of Knowledge, uh, yes. Would you mind elaborating on those two principles and how they affect uh, decision-making abilities uh, in terms of hiring people throughout the, uh, the business? 
Sure. So a really interesting uh, Peter principle is the idea that people get promoted to the level of their incompetence. <laughs> and why is that? Well, because what happens is that people who get promoted within the company usually get promoted, almost always get promoted on the basis of their competence in their current job. You know, how well are they doing? Let's say someone is a computer programmer and you want to get someone to be a computer, ma the manager of the computer programmers, the, what the leader of the IT department would look at and it would be who has seniority and who does a really great job as a computer programmer and then they would promote that person. The same thing happens with sales managers. Where do sales managers come from? Usually the promotion of the best salesperson when it comes time for the, you know, the sales VP to get a new sales manager. Both of those things are really bad ways of actually hiring someone, of actually promoting someone, because the scale, the skills required of a supervisor, of a manager, are often very different skills from those required of someone who is in the position of authority, of managing other people. That's why the best basketball players, football players, whatever players, don't make great coaches. Usually the best coaches come from people who really had a very relatively short career in the majors and the and they actually but they have the skills to coach others very effectively so that is a very dangerous approach the peter principle to promoting someone just looking at how good they are in their current job what you want to look at is how good they will be in the new job do their skills their existing skills that you see match up with the leadership skills needed in that new position. So that's one, that's the Peter Principle. Now the curse of knowledge has to do with the fact that we don't remember all the skills that we learned over time. So again, we don't remember the skills that we learned over time. So I've had, you know, by this time over 400 podcast interviews. So right now I've learned a whole bunch of skills about how to do podcast interviews. It would be really hard for me to convey them to somebody who didn't do podcast interview and to really think very clearly about all those skills that that person needs to know to do a good podcast interview. But, you know, one of the things I do with folks is I help them get podcast interviews. So I connect them to podcast hosts and then I see them not really engaging very well. And I'm like, oh, that's upsetting for me because that harms my reputation a bit. But I forget, it's very intuitive to forget that they don't have all the skills of doing podcasting well. And the same thing in skills and training, coaching, consulting that I do with others. And what happens is that someone gets promoted to a higher position and then they don't get leadership development. They don't get training in how to do that job because if the VP of sales promotes somebody to be the sales manager under uh, them, then they assume that that person will just know what a sales manager should do because the VP of sales knows it's like obvious, right? <laughs> what you should do. However, it's so hard to be the sales manager. There's so many little skills that you have to learn that are going to be very different from the skills that will have to do with being a good salesperson. But we forget that. So we don't give people nearly adequate leadership development, professional development for the new position in which they need to be in. So you have those, and that combination of both things is especially deadly. The Peter Principle, and the curse of knowledge. When you combine both of those things, you know people really get screwed by those. So glad companies do as well. 
So, Gleb, your your message for DNI isn't to hire more diversity. It's to be objective in your questions uh, when you're hiring this talent. Now, what if I have a company? If you want to, just to be very clear, if you want to hire diversity, that's not a bad thing. But you want to know what purpose you're hiring it for. So, for example, I was working with a Midwestern sale uh, fashion sales company, and they did want to hire more diverse people as salespeople. The point of that was so that they connect with their more diverse customer base because they had they had a very homogeneic uh, homogeneous sales population they weren't con- connecting very well with their customer base who are more diverse so that's a very good purpose to hire more diverse folks right exactly right and so but i guess what my message is your message to just to sum this up to dni is to have these consistent questions yes. um so there is no um uh, uh horns or halo effect uh, in <laughs> terms of that hiring process now what if i'm a company that's that's following that method and I, time after time again i keep hiring people that have you know look like me and have the same skill set as me and my company then becomes, you know, very, uh, it has an asymmetry of ethnical backgrounds on my, on my staff. Mm-hmm. Um, is that normal? And is that, is that you deem that as okay? And is that still fit in my DNI, you know, uh, requirements, I guess. So that has to do with the halo effect. Unfortunately, people often tend to hire others like themselves who are like themselves. And the halo effect, again, as I mentioned, if you like yourself, which most of us do, you'll tend to like other people like you. So if you don't watch out for this, you'll tend to hire other people like yourself. Hmm. And the way to compensate for it, of course, is the same thing that I mentioned before. If you want to connect with a more diverse client base, you want to uh, con- you want to hire people who salespeople who are going to be more diverse. If you want more diverse modes of thinking within your company, you want to hire people who are going to complement you. That's why my wife and I work very well. We are different. She's a pessimist. I'm an optimist. You don't want only optimists in the room. They will miss the risks and your company will crash down into some pretty terrible situations. You don't only want pessimists in the room because your company will not be doing anything new. <laughs> you will not have any new initiatives. You'll just be kind of very safe, you know, conservative. And in the, in the context of the changing environment, we're getting more and more disrupted here. <laughs> you don't want people who are not going to be changing with the environment. So you want to make sure that you compensate for your weaknesses and you complement your strengths. And you do that by hiring people who have different modes of thought than you do. So that's a very specific reason to hire people with different cognitive approaches to doing things. Mm, okay, got it. I'm there. Uh, so let, let's move on to the, the curse of knowledge. I want to go back to that just a little bit. Sure. Um, trying to unlearn something is is fairly difficult and trying to relay that to somebody is is something as time moves on becomes increasingly more difficult to do uh and i'm I'm saying that from my experience of even let's just take podcasting for example and and just (laughs) digital content making sure you know getting our interns on board and making sure that they understand how to do that uh you know i'm not that far out i've been doing it you know for about you know three years now and so Mm -hmm. getting on these beginner level sometimes i go yes have this done you know by tomorrow and you know my interns have no idea you know what how to how to do this so i have to help them (laughs) out 
Um, but it, you know, it is challenging, you know, for people, especially, you know, our, our age range goes from about, yes. we have the interns from, I don't know, they're like seven, uh, probably 18, 19 years old. And then our, uh, our, you know, our founder who's, you know, interacts with us all the time is probably around like 65. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you got a big discrepancy there. So trying to relate to a generational gap is one thing and trying to explain, uh, uh, how to do something is another. So what are, what's some of your advice to people listening to this, right? That they're trying to, to, you know, uh, share advice with someone in their employee, you know, someone in their, their company on how to do a specific task. So the first thing I would encourage you to do is to be more humble. That's something I had to learn. So a lot of my team is virtual. So here I work with my wife in our home office, but then other members of my team are virtual. And it has to, it takes a lot of effort to explain to them the kind of things that need to be done. And I know that I will do it much faster if I do it myself, (laughs) but then you need to understand that it takes on average about 30 times as much t- time to train someone to do something as it takes to do the task. Mm. So that's kind of how you, that should be your baseline. It shouldn't be your baseline. I'll explain this to this person one time and they'll get it. There are lots of things that you don't remember that you need to do when you first explain something. They seem natural and intuitive to you, but you had to learn how to do them. Just like, you know, how would you explain to someone how to drive a car? Think about that. It, 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 you would, it would take, you know, it's pretty simple, right? Push, push the gas, uh, you know, do the wheel, you know, right, left, and so yeah. on. It seems simple, but, but the first start, time I took yeah. the first time I took the driving test, I failed the driving test. I, even though I prepared for like you know a bunch of time before that, I don't remember thirty hours of driving I, I did before that, and that I, I mean I failed the driving test. It seems like something autopilot, like very intuitive to us, right? But it's much harder than it seems to actually drive a car and to do create digital content or to delegate a task. I mean, it takes so much effort to delegate a task because you have to think of all the ways someone can do it wrong (laughs) and address all those ways that someone can do it wrong, as well as all the ways that it needs to, all the things that need to happen for it to be done right. So having a baseline assumption that it will take about 30 times as long to explain and get it to explain clearly how to do a task and to train up this person in doing the task, whatever task you need to be done, as opposed to as compared to taking the time to do the task is a good baseline assumption. And having that, so that's kind of a baseline assumption. Now, the other thing that you want to be thinking about is you want to empower this person. You want to tell them that, hey, I have, you know, curse of knowledge, don't need to explain that. You don't need to use this term, but you say, hey, I know that maybe I will not be clear in explaining some of these things. And that's okay. Ask me questions. Don't assume that you know how to do this thing right away. Hmm. Ask me as many questions as needed. Please, I will be likely to miscommunicate some things just because I know so much about it. And I will likely miss some things. So it's okay if you make some mistakes at the start, but rather than make a mistake, rather than presuming that this is the way you should do it, ask me questions and let me know. I know it will take a while to train you. So empowering that person is the other critical element of addressing the curse of knowledge. So having a lower baseline than you might intuitively think, so 30 times as long, and empowering the person you're talking to, to ask you as many questions as possible and being humble about your ability to communicate effectively. Those are all elements that you need to have to address the curse of knowledge. 
So just being upfront about your knowledge gap, your perceptions, your experience, uh, and, and your, yes. your misunderstandings. I like that. But Gleb, another thing I, I really like about this, this the fun part of this of my job, which is the podcast, is uh, it's like game film. We've been mentioning some sports today. Uh, football players will be watching the game film that when Ohio State takes to um, Penn State this weekend, uh, and I'll Go surely past. be watching you know this this interview over again, saying, "Yeah, you know, I should have asked a better question. I'm going on too long. I'm stuttering. I'm ch- you know touching my chin." And that's what <laughs> I like about this. Um, and I was actually explaining. Uh, I was I was consulting with a company and going into. An organization pitching to you know these fifth you know plus fifty five year old um, you know white men and, and saying hey you know this is a strategy that has worked for us it's been very consistent um, and and just just to not be afraid here look where I started and, mm. and that's what I really like about your work as well Glad what do you have to say about the podcasting and the content stuff uh, from from your work I, I see you've got a lot of videos how have you used podcasting as reflection and, and a tool for improvement. So what I find is really useful with podcasting, especially the video casting where you can actually see me, is the personal relationship that's built up through podcasting. Right. So for personal through podcasting, especially video casting, you build up a personal relationship with people. You build up a personal relationship with the audience, and I really value that because I, I mean, my main way of getting my message out is for writing. But writing is you only see the text. It's only visual. And you don't even see kind of me. You don't see me. You only see the text. So it's only conveying the ideas. But it's not conveying the personality of the person. You know, as you can, you can't hear this in the text that I am writing, but you can hear from me that I'm really passionate about this stuff. I get really frustrated when people give that advice and going with their gut. I get really frustrated when I hear people just, you know, making a plan and assuming it will not fail. I get pretty frustrated when people go tribal on their hiring process. And I have strong emotions about this. I'm passionate about this. I care a lot. And you can see it, you can hear it. And that's relationship building, I think, is really important with people actually getting the person behind the text, actually getting to hear the person and see the person. So that's what I think is really important about the podcasting. Glenn, how, how do you have so much time to write all these books? I see you've got a few online. <laughs> yeah, would you mind sharing with our audience a little bit about this book, Never Go With Your Gut, and, and just talk about the processes that you go through in writing this? Sure. So the book... Never go with your gut. How pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. I like the cover, by the way. Not the one who created it, but the cover is uh, nice. really fun. Pops. So, yeah, I like it. So, how I go through the process is, first of all, as I'm, the book is drawn on my background, my experience. So, I look at the previous case studies of companies I worked with. It's mainly based on case studies of my personal experience because I know those most. I also have a few case studies of kind of what's going on in the contemporary environment, like let's say Equifax and the credit breach or Elon Musk and his tweets and Tesla, all those situations. So, I have I bring those up and Enron and so on. But I mainly go for my experience. And I look at my experience and I say, hey, what of my experience is going to be most illustrative for people? How can I help people understand what's going on in a pragmatic and relevant fashion? What stories are going to be engaging, fun, and relevant for the audience who I want to reach? And I use those, and then I put them into a structure that is based on the 30 most dangerous judgment errors that I mentioned. So the 30 most dangerous judgment errors, that's actually comes from an assessment I created a while ago 
uh, to replace a kind of uh, client engagement I used to do, which is come into a company and do a needs analysis. You know, what kind of ways is the company screwed up? What does it need? Now they can just have an assessment of the 30 most dangerous judgment errors. They don't actually need me to do that pretty expensive needs analysis. So I use that as a basis and I use case studies to illustrate each of these each of these cognitive biases that causes problems, and I put them into a specific structure that fits, and then I wrote the book using that structure. Studies, and of course, I got in the research that illustrates each of the that underpins each of these cognitive biases and how to address them. So I talk about the cognitive biases, mm-hmm. and then even more importantly for me, what I'm more passionate about is how do you solve them? <laughs> how do you actually solve these problems? And I talk about both the strategies from the research about how to solve these problems and how business leaders, in my experience, have been applying them really effectively in their companies or entrepreneurs have been employing them in their startups, nonprofit leaders have been employing them in their nonprofits to address these cognitive biases effectively and make the best decisions for the bottom line. So that is what each chapter is about. Each chapter starts with cognitive biases, kind of the problems, and then goes through the solutions using pragmatic real case types. Enticing. Uh, in terms of the writing process itself, though, Gleb, what do you do? When, are you writing that night? Or how long have you been writing for? What? How do you keep going oh. and being consistent on something like this? Like, how long does a book like this take <laughs> to, to turn out? It took me about. Let's see. It took me about six months to write the book and the it took me that short partially because I had the case studies sort of prepared. I had notes, you know, mm-hmm. when I work with a company, I take notes and then I see where I can use these. Sometimes they give me testimonials, sometimes it's private, but so anyway, I take notes and then I had those notes to work with. If I didn't have notes, it would take me way longer. It's, so it's about organizing those notes that took a coherent structure. And of course, I know the research. So having those notes and that structure then I was able to write it. But the first thing, of course, I did I did was not write the book. The first thing I did was secure a publisher. So for the folks who want to actually write with a traditional publisher like I did, and you can self-publish, but that doesn't give you the kind of exposure in bookstores and the credibility that you need in order to make a big impact. So I wanted to work with a traditional publisher and I wrote a book proposal, got it approved by an agent who then pitched it around to a number of publishers and then a publisher approved it. That's when I really started writing the book. So it took me about six months to write the book. It took me about nine months to go for the book proposal process, uh, securing the agent and getting the publisher, negotiating a deal with the publisher, and then going forward. It took me about six months to actually write the book. Then once I wrote it, it took me about... I want to say five months to edit it. And that's in collaboration with the publisher. So the publisher works with me, does structural editing, and then does copy editing on the ground level. And then after that, it took me about, I will probably another seven months for the marketing process to take place. So the book was published on November 1st of 2019. And then prior to that, there has to be a whole marketing process where I hire a publicist, the publicist goes through creating everything from a press release to contacting you know, podcasts and so on, and articles, getting editorial reviews, getting endorsements. I have something like 58 endorsements for the book from business and thought leaders, and then actually publishing the book and spreading the word. 
Well done, Gleb. Well, congratulations on the book and the book's, uh, you know, future success. I hope, uh, you know, our listeners and, and people uh, watching this on YouTube uh, will check it out. Uh, where, where are they going to find a website for this uh, to, to access this book? Is it on Amazon? Where is it? Yeah, the book is everywhere. It's on Amazon. It's in Barnes & Noble. It's your indie bookstores. So props to indie bookstores. Check those out. And of course, online, in person, you know, in all of these, because it's a traditional publisher, it's everywhere. So that's where the book is. If you want to check out my work, more about my work, go to disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Dot com. You'll find blogs. You'll find the decision, wise decision maker manifesto. You'll find an online course that you can take. You'll find a lot of videos and podcasts like this one that you can check out. And if you want to check me out on LinkedIn, I'm always happy to connect. So again, LinkedIn, Dr. Gleb Tsipursky, G-L-E-B, T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. If you have any questions about anything you heard in the podcast, email me. Gleb, G-L-E-B, at DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. Again, Gleb at DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. Gleb, last question I have for you. I want to make sure. this. I want to make this a continuous podcast. So, what's the what's the next? What's one question you would ask our next guest without even knowing who they are? Hmm. Let's see. I what? would ask about what is the toughest decision they ever had to make. What's the tough decision they ever had to make? Okay, everyone. Well, Gleb, appreciate your time here on the Really Just Podcast for, for uh, Gleb Sapersky. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, folks, and always keep it real. Thanks, Gleb. Appreciate you. Thank you very much. This was great. Okay.